doorknobs and people coughing and everything that goes on that spreads the germs. I haven't had a cold, I guess, or a flu in several years, quite a few years now. And I'm not bragging, I'm thankful. <laughs> and I, I hope it can stay that way. Anyway, we came in uh, Ezekiel down to chapter 34. Uh, I also might mention that I'm uh, having to redo the calendar. I, I made a mistake on there before we get into this, so we'll have to reissue it. But uh, of all places to make a mistake, uh, there was one in October, which put the, uh, all the events in October one day later than they should be. It only affected trumpets and atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles and things like that. <laughs> so I I inadvertently postponed it a day like the Jews do on purpose, but uh, it, it wasn't a hard month to figure the sun down. It was I think what I did was I calculated, and then when I w- went over to write it down, I I just simply wrote it in a day later than I should have. Uh, so some of them are hard to calculate. You have to check the sun down very carefully because it's, it's in April that the new moon comes only six minutes before sundown. So you have to look it up very carefully and be sure you get it right because it's so close to the the sundown time. But October wasn't like that. It's just, uh, I I think it was just a clerical error I made. So I'll get it corrected and get it out to you. But for anybody planning their vacations and so on way ahead uh, at work, or do we have anybody young enough to work anymore? Uh, <laughs> a different question. Uh, well, we do have a few. So, we'll get that straightened out and get it to you. Anyway, Ezekiel 34 is one, probably, if you were to pick a chapter in the Old Testament that more members of the church have used here in the end time than any other, uh, from Genesis to Malachi, uh, it would probably be Ezekiel 34. Uh, Jeremiah 23 and Malachi 1 and 2 might run a close second to that because Ezekiel 34 is primarily an indictment against the ministry and Jeremiah 23 parallels it, not word for word, but thought for thought pretty much. And Malachi, if anything, is even stronger <clears throat> in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, about the ministry in the church. And I will not try to deny these scriptures. Uh, They're on the same level as any other scripture. They're correct. And there was a huge problem in the church with the ministry for many years, and that is one of the primary reasons that the church was blown apart. It was because... uh, the ministers reflected the people, and the people reflected the ministers. It's kind of like politics in the world and in Washington. We kind of deserve the leaders we get because of the way we are. And on the other hand, anybody in a leadership role should take leadership and help pull the people to where they ought to be. But that isn't generally the way it works. The leaders of the world bow to the dollar, they bow to pay off, they bow to uh, different pressures 
to not be the kind of people that they may have thought they would be when they went into politics. Some of them go in thinking they will change everything, and then they get changed. Uh, And those same dynamics work in spiritual leadership as they do in political leadership. Uh, I have a book entitled, The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse. You don't necessarily have to read the book to get the point. Just the title is enough. Uh, So let's go into chapter 34. Uh, This one always makes me feel uneasy because I was part of the ministry of Worldwide Church of God for decades. And, uh, And some of the things God is talking about applied to me, and may still for that matter. Uh, because we're all human beings and we have to work at it. But this is a pretty stinging indictment here. The word of the Eternal came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now again, this is not ancient history. Uh, We'll see a couple of three clues in here that indicate it's talking about the end time ministry. And I think there are even more clues of that in Jeremiah 23 and Malachi than there are even here in Ezekiel. But the whole book of Ezekiel shows here and there that we're talking about the times of the latter days. The leadership in the millennium will not be allowed to be the way we are about to read. So this has to be talking about before that time and talking of today, because it's an end-time prophecy, the whole book of Ezekiel. It's not just history of ancient Israel and how their leaders were bad. Okay, it's, it's for now. So he says, The shepherds of the ministry of Israel prophesy and say to them, Thus says the eternal God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flocks. Now this could be in different ways. There are different ways to feed the flock. Uh, Spiritually, of course, is the highest level. And if they're not doing the proper job of giving the flock the spiritual understanding they need, then that is the highest level of uh, malfeasance on their part. Uh, It could have to do with the physical For instance, uh, we had in Worldwide policies in place uh, where the ministry stayed in pretty nice motels at the feast. They had an open bar. Uh, They had their meals prepared for them for the most part. And everything was pretty well on a high level. Uh, Maybe not as high as the jet set, but, uh, you know, in the world, but on a higher level than the most of the people there. Now, is that entirely wrong? No, it's not, because Paul made it very clear that those who labor in the Word and those who labor well should get not remuneration, but double remuneration. In other words, God values good spiritual teaching and a good example set by the ministry, and he is willing to reward that even physically in terms of pay scale. So it's not entirely wrong that the ministry uh, have nice things.
But where it became wrong was that the widow and the orphan uh, were given the very lowest of accommodations. That's what made it wrong. Uh, we got letters from Pasadena about second tithe help for the widows, and uh, they were to stay in the lowest accommodations of anyone. And they would have two or three to a room instead of having their private room. And they had a very, very low food budget where they could not eat whatever and drink whatever their heart desired during the feast, let's say. So that was an absolute wrong. It wasn't that the one was so wrong, but it was the other that made it wrong in the great contrast that was there. So, in that sense, there's one example how uh, there was a great disparity in the way the widows were treated. And you know, God doesn't... uh, God doesn't make any bones about it. There are many, many, many scriptures which show, and in these prophecies, that you are to take care of the widow and the orphan, that God holds them very, very high in His estimation. So they are not to be mistreated. And that's, that's where the indictment comes here. They fed themselves at the expense of the flock. Might be a good way of putting that. It, was, it isn't wrong for the shepherds to feed themselves. Okay, everybody has to eat. Everybody should be able to have what their heart desires. But don't have one class of people who get that and another class who do not. That is utterly wrong. So he says to the... And, and this is against the shepherds because what does the widow do about it? They're not in a position to determine what they receive or how they are only in a position to take what is given them. Whereas the ministry had the power to make things more even and make sure everyone had plenty. So it says, You eat the fat, and you clothe you with the wool. You kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. Now this isn't literal physical killing. This is uh, has to do with spiritual, emotional Uh, mental issues here. The diseased, the spiritually sick, you've not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. Now, that's reflected in Revelation 3 about Laodicea. Because people became Laodicean, lackadaisical, uh, not being fed enough spiritually to cause them to grow, and they stagnated, God kicked out the whole bunch. Ministry, people, everybody. Spewed the whole church out of His mouth. And He holds the ministry more responsible than anyone else. Now, it's like... Chapter 33, where he says, I've set a watchman, or if the people set a watchman in the nation. If that watchman does his job, then the people are warned, and they can do what's necessary to be safe. But if you don't warn them, then it's on your head. So God held the watchman responsible, and here then he's holding the ministry in general 
responsible for not providing the leadership that they should have provided, not taking proper care of the flock and being sure that they were in the good graces of God. And it turns out none of us were in the good graces of God, so we all got spewed. I don't care who you think you are, you got spewed. And used sometimes force and cruelty. Uh, Some of the stories I've heard in the last 20 years about things that went on in the church just almost are unbelievable about abuses that occurred. So, uh, this indictment is right on spot. And they were scattered because there's no shepherd. By the mid-90s, people were scattered and most congregations are down to 10% of what they had been. I traveled around the country with uh, another organization uh, for several years uh, and everywhere I would go, I would ask the question, what is the size of people who are still coming to whatever group they were in as compared to what they did have? And it was almost entirely right around 10% that they'd lost 90%. I remember in Palm Beach, for instance, they'd lost about 90%. Only 10 left because they'd asked me to come down and visit with them. They weren't part of the organization I was in, but they were going through all kinds of problems. So I went down to visit with them and that's what I found out. And didn't God say it would be about 90%? that would be put to famine and pestilence, the spiritual sword, and taken captive spiritually. So that's exactly what had happened by the mid-90s to 2000. So they were scattered because there were no shepherds. And each shepherd was crying, I'm the only good guy, follow me and everything will be okay. And each one of those good guys was a composite of the bad guys. All of us. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field where they were scattered. They got picked off. Some went back to Protestantism. All kinds of things happened. My sheep wandered through all the mountains. They went from church to church, government to government. A lot of the organizations, the splinter groups, would say, oh, we have four new people that came in the front door. But they don't tell you about the four that just went out the back door. (laughs) So, that's what was going on. They were moving from place to place. In the front door, out the back door. Wandering about. And upon every high hill. They looked at the big groups. They looked at the smaller groups. Yes, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth. And none did search or seek after them. Uh, Some thought they were. uh, But... There was no means, really. And no one understood enough to know what to tell them anyway. When the ministry is confused and doesn't know what to do, how are they going to help anybody even if they try? Because the ministry did not understand what had just happened to the church. Now, some of them blamed it on the the Laodiceans, And they classed everybody that wasn't with them as Laodiceans. So they were not looking at reality and realizing we all are. If we've been spewed, we're part of it. And repent and begin to look in the Scriptures to see what God said 
were the solutions to this, and they didn't do it. They went on trying to recreate Worldwide Church of God, which God had just spewed out because he was unhappy. So, do you bake another cake with the exact same recipe as the one that just got thrown to the chickens? No. You've got to make it different if you expect God to accept it. So, there needed to be some major changes, and nobody understood what God wanted. Because they did not consult His Word, and did not consult Him to find out what really happened. Therefore, verse 7, you shepherds, hear the word of the Eternal. As I live, says the Eternal God. Strong terms. Surely because my flock became a prey, and my flock became meat to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherd search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and fed not the flock. Repeating that. Therefore, O you shepherds, hear the word of the Eternal. Uh, and I might add that it wasn't out with the local ministry so much as it was in Pasadena. Some of those fat cats in Pasadena had enormous salaries and enormous expense accounts that as a local pastor, I did not even know they had. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't giving us that high uh, of wages, but the, some of the ones in Pasadena certainly were. And they, again, I mean, the local ministry was kind of like the widow. They just had to take what they were given. And we were well compensated. I won't say it was, was bad, but it wasn't great. But the ones who made the decisions had all they wanted, pretty much. So God is right on target here. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Eternal. Uh, ten, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. I'll take them away from them and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. The flock just went away. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves anymore, because if you don't have the tithes and offerings of the flock, you don't eat either. You've got to go find some, something to eat somewhere else. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves any more, for I will deliver my flock from their mouth, that they may not be meat for them. We still have an unfulfilled scripture in Zechariah 11 about three big uh, groups, three big trees representing churches, or three shepherds that will be cut off in one month. I have not seen anything that indicated to me that that prophecy has yet been fulfilled. So it's still down the road a little ways. Maybe it will come to pass about the time the financial crash occurs in this country. Uh, verse 11, For thus says the eternal God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. Now, he tells us in Haggai that he is going to gather a 10% remnant. doesn't say 10% in Haggai, but it does in Isaiah 6 and other places. A remnant is 10%, essentially. So he is going to begin to gather them. Uh, as a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all the places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. Now, I believe that verse 12 applies uh, 
to the scattering that we have now seen, it has been a cloudy and dark day for the church. It has been a cloudy and dark day for the ministry. Uh, It is a smaller cloudy and dark day than the day of the Lord which is to come. So these prophecies are always dual. In other words, he's referring here, first of all, to spiritual Israel, the church, who takes the brunt of this. But he is then also referring to that time when the world's ministry and the world's so-called Christendom and all Israel, his sheep, are scattered by war and famine and pestilence on a physical level. So first we've seen this in the church, as I've said many times, and it's already basically history now. We're reading a history lesson here about the church. We're reading about the last 25 years. That's what we're reading about. Now, we can also sit here today and apply it to all the nations of Israel as a whole who are about to be scattered like we were. Ours was a spiritual scattering. Amos talks about a famine of the word. Famine, pestilence, spiritual sword, spiritual captivity has already occurred. Now physical famine and pestilence, sword, and uh, captivity and slavery are about to occur to this nation and all the nations of Israel for that matter. But this one first because it's the great whore that the rest of the world hates more than anything else. So understand that the scattered and the cloudy and dark day does not refer only to the, the biggest and final fulfillment of this, but also that which has spiritually occurred in the cloudy, dark day for the church. The day is, the, the sun is coming back for the church very soon now, because we've already been through our clouds and darkness. And he says he's going to gather his people and his, turn his face and shine on them and cause them to build his temple. So the cloudy and dark day for us is past, spiritually. And the sun is going to begin to shine soon, just as the dark and cloudiness comes on physical Israel. So there's, there's two revivals. There's the revival of the church at the end time, and the revival of all Israel at the beginning of the millennium, or great white throne judgment, depending on where you are. <clears throat> 13, and I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. So God is going to bring the church back to the original promised land. The church hasn't even understood where that is. And 99 point whatever percent of the church still does not know where the promised land is. But they're going to find out. And it doesn't say there in Jeremiah, they'll, they'll go forth ahead of the army saying, Where is Petra? Is that the way you read Jeremiah? Chapter 50? doesn't say that. About the third verse, whatever it is, it says, They will come ahead of the armies saying, How do I get to Zion? The church still doesn't know where Zion is or what it is or what God is going to do there. So they are totally in the dark. You talk about a time of darkness and clouds. It's not just trouble and confusion and destruction. 
but they still don't have a clue what God is going to do here in the end time. David Pack kind of got a little bit on the edge of it, but never grasped it. And got in trouble for it, by the way. Because what little he did understand about it, uh, people rejected. So he, he never saw the whole picture at all. So, not only are we wandering around blind and naked, we don't even know what's coming as far as the church is concerned. Scripture is very clear in Haggai and Zechariah. Even Herbert Armstrong understood it to a degree. He even told me, as I've said several times in a private meeting, that he was the rubble bell, which caused me to study Haggai and Zechariah, and that was in 1981. And I didn't get the picture then either. I, I saw that there was a revival in the church. But Herbert Armstrong thought he was the latter temple, not the former temple. He didn't understand it and, and wasn't ever going to in his lifetime. He understood that he was involved, but he didn't understand what his part was. And the church to this day still does not understand Haggai and Zechariah. But it will be put in their faces, believe me, when the time comes. So they'll go to their own land. That's what set me off on the promised land. Not, not the Arabs' land in the Middle East, but their own land that God gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob here in the tribe of Ephraim in the southwest. Verse 14, I will feed them in a good pasture, and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall be they shall lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. This mountain range that runs right down the middle of Utah, or kind of the west of the middle, uh, were the high mountains of Israel. And that's where David fed his flocks. There aren't any high mountains of Israel in the Middle East. Uh, nothing is there that's high. I think Mount Hermon goes up to about nine, up, but it's almost in Lebanon, and it's bare, and uh, there's just really nothing there. It's just kind of a barren hill. There's not much dew comes off of it either that'll flow down on Zion as some, what is it, 86 says, somewhere in there. So the high mountains of Israel, I will feed my flock and I will come cause them to lie down, says the eternal God. The flock lies down when it's content, when its tummy's full and it's happy. They stand up and bleat if they're uncomfortable. I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away. In Haggai it says that he will stir them to come. He's using the same language here through Ezekiel. God is going to be the one that does it. It's not going to be the ministry. The ministry has already blown it. And God is going to stir them to come to the leaders that He appoints. And I will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. So God says, I'm going to make a choice here. I'm going to pull out those that will hear me, that will be stirred by my voice, since he is the shepherd, speaking of Christ here. But the fat and the strong that have fed themselves, I'll feed them judgment, uh, not blessing. And as for you, O my flock, thus says the eternal God, behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the he-goats. 
uh, he'll decide who to bring and who not to bring. 10% remnant. 90% will be left to go into the tribulation, and there they will, e- there they will die, and about 30%, according to Zechariah, will repent before they die and be still part of the first fruits. Seems that a small thing to you to have eaten up the good pasture, but you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures. And to have drunk of the deep waters, but you must uh, foul the residue with your feet. So what you did have that was good, you've, you've fouled it up and misused it and abused it and made it where nobody had anything good. Under Herbert Armstrong, there was a lot of good. But it got befouled by those who were not following what they were supposed to be doing. And some of them ultimately led half the church off into Babylon. And they certainly trod down everything good that had been there. Verse 19, And as for my flock, they eat that which you have trodden with your feet, and they drink that which you fouled with your feet. And many of them did imbibe of... You can wear makeup, and you can uh, keep Sunday, and you can not tithe, and you can do this, and you can do that. You can eat pigs and shrimp. And they ate of that, that which had been fouled and abused and misused and was unclean. Therefore, thus says the eternal God to them, Behold, I even I will judge between the fat cattle and the lean cattle. Because you've thrust with the side and with the shoulder and have pushed all the disease with your horns till you've scattered them abroad. That sounds like Corinthians, doesn't it? Where God says, I'll call the weak in the base. So the fat cats of the worldwide church of God flock and those who fed themselves and says, we're okay. They wipe their mouth and say, I've done no sin. Uh, I'm the Philadelphians. God's going to judge between them and the poor ones that have been driven out, who've not had feed, who've not had this, who've not had that. And He will bring them in and heal them and take care of them. So, just as He said, I will take the weak and the base and I will use them to glorify My name, not those who were self-important or set themselves up as true ministers. We'll find, I think we'll go to Jeremiah and parallel it with this, where it shows that uh, there are those who are presumptuous who have set themselves up as teachers. That's a no-no too. Therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle. God is going to take the 10%. He's going to become a wall around them, as Haggai 2, I mean Zechariah 2 says, and He will come and dwell with them again in chapter 2 and protect them, and feed them, and they will do a worldwide work. That's what he is going to do. See, it's still talking premillennial here. It doesn't suddenly shift to the millennium, <clears throat> because it's talking, first of all, about the church. Now, in a larger sense, again, this will apply to all Israel, which has been scattered physically, and they will be redrawn physically into the millennium. So it has both applications. <clears throat> and I will set up one shepherd over them. He shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. 
Uh, Jeremiah puts that a little bit different. He says there a, uh, a leader unto David or a leader like David. Uh, when you read Zechariah 4, you see that Zerubbabel uh, is the one who has made the overall leader. And at the end of Haggai, he is the one that has made a signet or a, flower, a flag bearer for the church. Uh, so there are two end-time leaders, but one uh, is higher than the other like Moses and Aaron were. <coughs> so it will be, in that sense, one shepherd over them. And then David himself, of course, will come back in the millennium over all Israel. And I, the Eternal, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Eternal, has spoken it. And I will make with them a covenant of peace, and will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land. They shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. That sounds like uh, Isaiah 51, where he says, Look to Abraham and Sarah. And I will give you the Garden of Eden. I'll make Edenic conditions for you. And he's speaking to the church there, here at the end time. It will be a contrast to what Satan is providing for the world. That's the whole point, is who is God and who are the followers of Satan. And I will make them and the places round about my hill, the hill of Jerusalem, a blessing. And I will cause the shower to come down in this season, and there shall be showers of blessing. And in the New King James it says, And then the tree of the field shall yield her fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase, and they shall be safe in their land, back in their own land, the original promised land, the original Jerusalem, and shall know that I am the Eternal. It uses that expression again. When I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them out of the hand of those that serve themselves of them, they will be broken and bleeding, and God will bring them back and restore them. And they shall no more be a prey to the heathen. The heathen will still be around, but they won't be a prey to them. Neither shall the beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and none shall make them afraid. See, this is a microcosm or a type of the way it will be in the kingdom of God, both in the government, New Jerusalem, and in the land. And I will raise up for them a plant of renown, doesn't he say there in the end of Ezekiel 16, he will crop a twig from the dead tree and make a live tree out of it and cause it to grow and become great in the land. And Previous to that, in Ezekiel 16, he's talking about Worldwide Church of God and its leadership, Herbert Armstrong, and then to the Cotches, and how uh, it failed, and that he is going to establish something that will work. So it will be a plant of renown, as Ezekiel puts it here, uh, and similar to what he said in, at the end of chapter 16. And they shall be no more consumed with hunger in the land, neither bear the shame of the heathen any more. Thus shall they know that I, the Eternal, their God, am with them, and that they, even the house of Israel, are my people, says the Eternal. And ye, my flock, the flock of my pasture, are men. And I am your God, says the Eternal God. Now, why does it say you're men? Those who are in the first resurrection, the 144,000, 
are the primary flock of God. And at the beginning of the millennium, they will not be men. They will be God. God will have resurrected his flock, spiritual Israel. And they won't be men anymore. But this is talking about his spiritual flock and their shepherds. And here, he says, they are men. So the time frame he's speaking of has not changed from the terrible destruction that has occurred within the church. He's speaking of the time when the church's remnant is restored. And his flock are still men. Now that carries over, even in the larger sense, when, when physical Israel will be restored or will go into the millennium if they've survived the Holocaust, and they will still be men, right? So here, whether you take the spiritual Israel analogy or the physical Israel analogy, the time that this is speaking of is when both are still men. That's what he's pointing out. Now, let's go back to Jeremiah and read the parallel. Jeremiah 23. Again, Jeremiah is an end-time prophetic book. He starts out about the same way. Woe to the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Eternal. So it's a spiritual analogy here of the pastors. It's not just physical. Therefore, thus says the Eternal of God of Israel, against the pastors that feed my people, you've scattered my flock and driven them away <coughs> and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, says the Eternal. And I will gather the remnant. Here he says remnant. He doesn't say the whole flock, does he? Haggai says a remnant. Isaiah says a remnant. It's all through the prophecies, a remnant. That's about 10%. That's about what came back in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. So that is the number and the analogy that God uses, and Jeremiah makes that plainer, I think, than Ezekiel did for that particular point. So it's the remnant out of all countries around the world. Isaiah says east, west, north, and south. Uh, whether I have driven them, so he is the one who did the spewing, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. So they are going to be fed properly again and begin to produce fruit. What does he say to the end-time remnant in Haggai? Fear not. Be of good courage. Uh, work and... Um, Oh, the, the, the word leaves me. Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will raise up, I'll raise unto David a righteous branch. Now he calls the Rubbabel a branch in Zechariah three as well, where it says that uh, Zechariah, I mean that Joshua there will be the high priest, but signs and wonders will be done and God will put a stone there with the seven eyes on it. Christ is the foundation stone. He will do those signs and wonders and cause them to look there. But it says there that He will reveal His servant the branch. Well, the branch is the correct bow, the right brow, 
bow the right branch. I know a man who has that actual physical name in German. Wonder why. So the branch is Zerubbabel that's raised up to David as an end-time leader of, or king or leader of spiritual Israel. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Instead of the woeful judgment that was given by those in worldwide who departed from what truth was there. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. Again, a remnant of them, spiritual Israel, remnant of the church. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. So God is going to raise up a type of Christ. Now Christ says he is going to be there himself and dwell with us in Zechariah 2 again. So he will be there, and someone who typifies him will be there. That's what a high priest does. Christ is our high priest, right? On high. Hebrews makes that very clear. He is the high priest. But Paul also talks about high priests of men. So a high priest among men is merely a type of the high priest, Christ. So let's not get worried about or fearful if someone is trying to act as if they're Christ. No, that isn't the point. Everyone appointed and anointed to the ministry is a type of Christ. A shepherd following Christ. That is a type. Just like our children are types of us. And they actually even grow up to be a lot like us, unfortunately. But he tells us to grow up like him. Now let's take that just a little bit further. Everyone who is a true Christian is a type of Christ. Doesn't Revelation 5 tell us that we will be kings and priests with him for a thousand years? That means that right now we are kings and priests in the making stage. So, if we are to rule with Christ and be kings and priests under Christ, that means that we are, should be becoming like Him now. Isn't that what a type is? Someone like someone else? Doesn't He say we are to walk as He walked and think as He thought and bring every thought into the captivity of Christ? We are to become like Him. When someone sees us, somewhere along the line, we should come to the point that they say, that person is like Christ, or is Christ-like. Or if you wanted to pick out somebody who was a type of, or the same type as, let's say, Christ, that would be him. I don't know how many of us might have been referred to as Christ-like so far. Probably rare. Few and far between. Now, once in a while, we might say to someone, well, that's the way Christ would think. 
Let's do that. So you might get referred to in some ways as having a thought like Christ's. So when I say here that this man or these two men are types of Christ, so is everyone else who was ever ordained to minister to God's spiritual flock, and so is every member of that flock a type of Christ. So let's act like it. That's the bottom line. Act like it. Act like Christ. Then you are a Christ type, a Christ likeness. Therefore, verse 7, Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, that they shall no more say, The Eternal lives, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Mitzrayim. But the Lord lives, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country, and from all countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Again, referring to the original promised land, where Zion is. So, what is about to happen is going to put the Red Sea in the rearview mirror. Now, the Red Sea has been the standard throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, even the New Testament has references to the Red Sea and Pharaoh. That has always been the standard of God's deliverance, right? It is the one that has been recounted throughout the history of Israel as the thing you point back to as the greatest achievement of God in delivering His people. Now, there were other deliverances. Uh, how about when they went into the Promised Land and the Jordan backed up? Well, backing a river up is an incredible miracle. But parting a sea is a greater miracle with a greater number of people. So it's the standard in the Bible all the way through. Now, God says that standard is going to be forgotten. But they will no longer speak of it. Now, that tells me that this deliverance that is coming is going to be so dramatic and so big, not in numbers of people, as in three and a half million or whatever, but in terms of how God goes about it and what He does, is going to make us forget all those references in the Bible to the Red Sea. This is going to be a pretty dramatic thing where God delivers His people and puts them in their own land. And if you put all the Scriptures together about how He's going to make us uh, live in a garden that is as Eden and restore health and give us deer legs and all those things that He says He's going to do for the end-time church, it will indeed make the Red Sea look small by comparison. My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the eternal and because of the words of his holiness. So, it shook Jeremiah to realize what destruction was going to come. And then the sheer amazement of what God was showing him would come later made him, oh man, I'm like a drunk man. What's going on here? This is so hard, so evil, and this is so good. I don't know what to think. Because of the words of His holiness. For the land, as he looked around, he says, God's going to 
make things wonderful and better than they've ever been. But I look around and the land is full of adulterers. For because of swearing, the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. And their course is evil and their force is not right. For both the prophet and the priest are profane. Yes, in my house, God says, have I found their wickedness, says the Eternal. So that's what Jeremiah was looking around and seeing. It was those people who put him in jail. I look around now. I've got people try, literally trying to put me in jail. They're trying to do that. That's what was going on around Jeremiah. It's what's going on in the church today. Wherefore their ways shall be to them as slippery ways in the darkness. You ever, were you ever drunk trying to get around in the darkness? Bad enough just in the darkness. But he says they're like, he was like a drunk man. And so were they. <clears throat> they shall be driven on and fall therein, for I will bring evil upon them, even the year of their visitation, says the Eternal. <clears throat> and we have seen that happen in the church, where people are staggering around in the dark, don't know what's going on, they're confused. I've seen folly in the prophets of Samaria, that's Israel. They prophesied in Baal. Uh, Tekach has led them right back to Baal and Babylon and set up their... Uh, their presence there, as Zechariah 5 says. And they caused my people Israel to err. I've seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers, that none does return from his wickedness. The teaching isn't helping people grow and overcome and get rid of their wickedness, but allowing them to continue in it allowing them to continue in what got them spewed out in the first place. They're all of unto me as Sodom and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. May not be as much uh, physical uh, homosexuality in the church as was in Sodom and Gomorrah, but he says the effect is the same. I look upon what I see going on in the church is the same as Sodom and Gomorrah. It just needs to be wiped out. Therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood and make them drink the water of gall. Very, very bitter things will occur. For from the prophets of Jerusalem is profaneness gone forth into all the land. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Hearken not to the words of the prophets that prophesy to you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Eternal. <coughs> That's literally what they do when they preach to you, Herbert Armstrong, and that all we have to do is rebuild worldwide like it was. All we have to do is do a little bit better job of what we were doing. That's a, out of their own heart. That's out of their own mind, their own thinking. Because they haven't looked in the Bible and understood what God is going to do. There are very, very few people that understand that today. Go out and look for it and see if you can find it. They say still to them that despise me, the Eternal has said, you shall have peace. Don't they say that? If you'll just be in my group, my organization will have peace here, everything will be okay. And we'll all go to a place of safety and everything will be fine if you just stay here. 
But it's not sitting well with people. That's why they go in the front door and sit a while and go out the back door. Now, we've had people come in the front door and go out the back door here. But it hasn't been because I told them they'd be safe if they were here. In fact, the message here is nobody's safe unless they repent and turn to God with all their heart. That's been the message you've heard here. And some people don't want to hear that message, so they depart from that, even. But you have never heard me say that if just because you're in this group, everything will be fine for you. I don't believe I have ever said that. I don't believe it, so I don't think I've ever said it. I certainly don't remember it. And you can go through every tape, and I don't think you'll find that. The message always is, every one of us needs to repent of our Laodiceanism and turn to God with our whole heart, and then we will find Him and hope and pray that He considers us worthy to help build His temple. That's the message you've heard here. But where did I get that message? Right out of this book. Right out of these prophecies. Because that's where you have to look to find out what God wants you to do. And just because you dream of visions of worldwide glory and think that you're Elisha following Elijah doesn't mean that's true. And Herbert Armstrong was not the end-time Elijah anyway. He may have been a minor type. But when he finished preaching... The world didn't come to an end, as it says it will happen when the two witnesses get done. They are the final Elijah and Moses of Malachi, who will preach the gospel around the world as a witness, and immediately upon the end of that, they will die. And three and a half days later, Christ will return. That's what Matthew 24 and all the prophecies are speaking of. Herbert Armstrong thought he was one of the two witnesses. And he thought his son Joshua, or his son Ted, was Joshua. And I think in minor type they were. But they weren't the final ones that the final scriptures are talking about. And did we have peace? No. And since then, there's not been real peace anywhere. Verse 18, For who has stood in the counsel of the Eternal and and has perceived and heard His word? Who has marked His word and heard it? Now there's an indictment against the whole church and the whole ministry. Because they went on thinking that what they were doing in Worldwide was the thing that had to be done. We still got to get the gospel preached. It wasn't finished. Let's go do it. And they went on in the same mold and pattern that they had all along. And God says right here, Who has perceived and heard His Word? Who has marked His Word and heard it? That's pretty plain. That the pastors He's addressing here, the ministry as a whole that He's talking about, have not perceived what His Word was saying, (coughs) have not read it and marked it and done it. That's pretty clear, isn't it? How clear can you get? Behold, a whirlwind of the eternal has gone forth in fury, even a grievous whirlwind. It shall fall grievously upon the head of the wicked. Who's he talking about here? Those, Those who have not perceived what the book of God is saying. 
and have done something different. The anger of the Eternal shall not back off or return until he have executed, until he have performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days you shall consider it perfectly or certainly. You'll understand it perfectly. All right, this is something that could not be understood back in the days of Worldwide and Herbert Armstrong because we thought that was the end and it was the final church. But no, it was the former temple. The one under the two witnesses and the remnant is going to be the latter temple. And in the latter days, we can finally come to understand that. Not before. So this isn't millennial. This is the latter days when we perceive what God is going to do with the church. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. I can name you some names that fit that perfectly. Jerry Flurry being one of them. He thinks he's the Elisha after Elijah, and he picked up Herbert Armstrong's mantle, and he's going to do greater works than Herbert Armstrong. No, he ain't. He hasn't so far, and he's not going to. It's not as big a work by any means as it was under Herbert Armstrong. I didn't send him. He is the one who assumed he was to have the mantle of Herbert Armstrong. I don't usually name names, but some of these are getting ridiculous. What do they prophesy? All Jerry Flurry really prophesies is the same things Herbert Armstrong said that didn't work out. Saying the same thing over and over again, it's already too late for that. But if they had stood in my counsel, if they had turned to God in His Word, and had caused my people to hear my words instead of their own words, then should they have turned them away from their evil way, their Laodiceanism, and from the evil of their doings, and told them to get hot, not lukewarm anymore. Not half in it and half out of it anymore. Am I a God at hand, says the Eternal, and not a God far off? Am I there? Or am I hidden? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, says the Eternal? Do not I fill heaven and earth, says the Eternal? Do you really think you can get away from my words? You can't. Now, we thought we could get away from Revelation 3 about Laodiceanism, didn't we? Didn't we think we could get away from that? Didn't we say, we're all Philadelphia, and Herbert Armstrong work is the Philadelphia work, and if you're in the Philadelphia work, you are free from the judgments of God that is going to come on those stinking Laodiceans. and everything will be fine. We'll all jump a plane and go to Petra, and the Laodiceans will be left behind. Wasn't that in direct defiance of what God is saying right here? <coughs> Everything's going to be okay. Can't hide from God. Who did He spew? The whole church. Even those groups who have gathered people up since were all scattered ministers and scattered people. And then they began to form into pods here and there. Scattered everybody. 
He found us all, didn't he? We couldn't hide from him. Now we better hear his words. Not my words, not their words, God's words. I have heard, verse 25, what the prophets say, that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. I'm, I'm, I have it all. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart. What they dreamed up did not come from God. It was out of their own heart. Now, does that mean all dreams are wrong? No. Doesn't God say that He is going to give dreams even to our young men and maidens and so on in the book of Joel here in the end time? So dreams have their place. But if the dreams are apart from and different than the words of God, then they didn't come from God. Now, I've lived among Mormons for a lot of years, even before coming out here when we were up and I had churches in Idaho. And nearly every Mormon you talk to has had dreams. Those dreams affect their lives, they affect their families, they affect world history. Not all Mormons, but most Mormons you speak of, too, will tell you who they're related to, number one, and number two, they'll get in on their dreams that they've had. That's the way it is. Did those dreams come from God? Not in a pagan organization that is not the Latter-day Saints, Sunday keepers, Christmas keepers, on and on and on it goes. But they've had their dreams. Aren't from the Word of God. They don't fit the Word of God. So even people in the church who have dreams had better check those against the Word of God and mark His Word. And if their dream fits this, then that dream may be from God. But if it doesn't fit this, it's out of your own heart and mind and imagination and vanity and ego. Verse 27, "...which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbor, as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal." Dreams that come from your own heart and mind are going to lead people away from God, not to God. Dreams that fit the Word of God will lead you toward God's Word. There's how you know the difference. The prophet that has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that has my Word, let him speak my Word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Eternal. So if it comes to a difference between a dream and the Word of God, you take the Word of God at all times. Now, if a dream fits the Word of God, fine. But if it doesn't, the Word of God is the trump card. Is not my word like as a fire, says the Eternal, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? God's Word stands above everything else. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophet, says the Eternal. Let's steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophet, says the Eternal. Let use their tongues and say, he says. Don't all these groups out here that are splinters of worldwide say, God says? But God doesn't say what they're saying. He tells the two witnesses not even to go to the world, but to go to the church first. Later on, they go to the world. 
But these guys, not a one of them that says the church comes first. Don't even go to the world. Leave that out. It's what Revelation 11 says very plainly. Take care of the church. That's what Zechariah 4 says very plainly. His remnant, his church, right now is the most important thing because that's what he's working with to be the first fruits and what he's working with to do the end time work to the rest of the world. So until that forms and the temple is built <coughs> and Jerusalem is built, the church is the key. Now, when that is polluted, according to Daniel 9, by the abomination of desolation, then the church goes after the world, but not until then. And that hasn't happened yet. And yet nearly every splinter and branch is trying to get to the world and teach the world God's way and convert them. Nah, it's not what the Bible says. And they use their tongue and say, this is what God wants us to do. No, it isn't. It's not what the book says. Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams. Not true dreams, but false dreams, says the Eternal. And do tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, says the Eternal. Going to these splinter groups that are trying to tell you to go on and do what Worldwide did are not going to help those people. They're going to go into the tribulation unless God says, I want that one, and stirs him to come to help build the temple. Verse 33, And when this people, or the prophet or a priest, shall ask you, saying, What is the burden? What is the word of the Lord? You shall then say to them, What burden? I will even forsake you, says the Eternal. What God has said that he is going to do with the remnant of the church is not an evil pronouncement or a burden. It is a freedom. It is a liberty. It is a chance to flee from the world and from the false pastors of the worldwide church of God and others and come and work for Christ himself to build a temple. It's not a burden. That's a joyous thing that I'm looking forward to and hoping I'm qualified to be there. Thus shall you say everyone to his neighbor and everyone to his brother, what has the eternal answered and what has the eternal spoken? Let's find out. And the burden of the eternal shall you mention no more. For every man's word shall be his burden, for you have perverted the words of the living God. Thus shall you say to the prophet, What has the Eternal answered, and what has the Eternal spoken? But since you say the burden of the Eternal, therefore thus says the Eternal, because you, you have this word, the burden of the Eternal, and I have sent to you, saying, You shall not say the burden of the Eternal. Therefore, behold, I, even I, will utterly forget you, and I will forsake you, in the city that I gave you and your fathers, and cast you out of my presence, and I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you, and a perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten. Now, how have, or how has the ministry told the people of Worldwide Church of God that God's Word is a burden? Very simple. They've told them, you're all laid of sins, and you're all going into 
the fire of tribulation. That's a pretty heavy burden, isn't it? Now, contrast that by saying, look, we've all gone into this. We've all been spewed out. The burden of the eternal has already come. Now, we will move forward and feed on the high mountains of Israel and we'll build a temple of God and help bring in true righteousness and show the world who God is. That's not a burden. But those who have laid that burden on the whole church by saying everybody but me is a Laodicean are going into the tribulation. Unless they repent and God draws them out to help build a temple, which He will do with 10%. So that's where it stands. I'm out of time or I'd go to Malachi and would see the whole story all over again because it's just as bad there as it is here. But it also culminates the same way, saying Christ will suddenly come to His temple and He'll work with Moses and Elijah <coughs> to bring His people back together and to do the work. So, it's the same story repeated there in Malachi. Whether I'll go there next week or not, I don't know. It's just a, it's, it's the third witness. <laughs> Three strikes and you're out. Malachi is essentially the same story as, as uh, Jeremiah 23 and, and Ezekiel 34. So, let's wrap it up then for today.